kids are dismissed to go back to children's church now. Um, we're in John chapter 12. If you want to turn there, we're going to read John 12, starting in verse 12. Um, so we just sang, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing is a hymn that was, that was written in 1757, more than 250 years ago. And I, whenever we do that, I'm just astounded by, we're, st- we're singing the same hymns, the same music that they sang 250 years ago. We, I, I feel like we, we connect with the saints of old when we sing those old hymns. And it's profound to think that 250 years ago they were singing the, the same song that, that we just sang um, all over the globe. Um, I don't know if you like me. I think that's kind of cool. Uh, so John chapter 12, verse 12 um, familiar passage for all of us. It's the triumphal entry. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. Um, Let me read this passage, and then uh, we'll pray, and then we'll get into what I think God has to say to us. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to hear and witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard that he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are going to gain You are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's uh, let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this passage. I thank you mostly for Jesus. Father, and the humility that he shows in coming to us, coming into Jerusalem on this day. Thank you so much for Jesus. I pray that we would see his power, his authority, and his humility, and his grace, and his desire to to have intimate relationship with us. I pray you would give us that this morning. Allow us to see you and see your son and see humility, Father. God, change our hearts, change our lives, change our minds, change even our perspective on how we view the world, how we view ourselves, God, but mostly how we view you. Thank you for Jesus. In his name, amen. So I want to say this at the beginning. The triumphal entry, that if you've been in church much, you've probably heard that phrase before, the triumphal entry. This is it. This is when Jesus goes into Jerusalem. And it is Jesus revealing and modeling the definition of humility. Um, 
There's so much happening here that, that we need to, to be aware of. Jesus is just, it says the next day, that's the first words I read in, in John 12, 12, the next day. So after the whole Lazarus situation and rising from the dead and, and the religious leaders deciding we got to kill this guy. And remember they gathered in a room, 72 of them, and, and made the decision we're going to murder Jesus. The next day, this happens. Jesus goes into the city and they're waving palm branches to him. And there's a lot of history that, to, for us to, to know and understand before we get to this. Um, first of all, in the intertestamental period, there was a, a Jewish revolt led, uh, and, and what happened was they celebrated, it was sort of a, a Braveheart type thing where there's a guy who rises up and, and ri- lays his, uses a revolt. He's this really powerful, strong figure you can read about in the history books. But how they celebrated him was palm branches. So they've kind of developed the custom when a hero comes to town, we're going to use palm branches to, to wave to, hey, wow, this is, this is our hero. So they're remarking that this is their hero. And, and it's interesting because Jesus is seen to be the hero that's going to save them from this great oppression. And as, as we walk through this, we're going to find out that these Jewish people feel oppressed, experience oppression, but they've, they've got a miscalculation on who their oppressor is. And I want us to know that. If, if I ask you, when was the last time you felt real oppression? Or when was the last time you felt real difficulty? And then ask you to pinpoint a person or a group of people who are causing that oppression. Chances are you're going to get that question wrong. Definitely, these Jewish people got that, that question wrong. They felt like their oppressors were the Romans who were occupying their territory, and they were a client state, which meant that Rome had all the, the authority, and then the authority that the Jewish people had was given to them by Rome and could be taken away from them by Rome at any point. So they saw Rome as their oppressor, So they saw a hero as someone who could come and relieve that oppression. Jesus came to them as a hero to relieve them of oppression, but they were looking for a different sort of oppression to be relieved from. And so the takeaway for us here now today is that chances are who we think is our oppressor is is not the one bringing the real oppression into us and into our lives. And Jesus enters into that with a massive amount of humility. Um, Josephus, more, more history lesson here. Josephus is a historian around this time and, and wrote ec- stuff outside of the Bible. Didn't, he didn't write the Bible, but he, he writes reliable history of what's happening here. He estimates the year that this happened, there was probably 2.7 million Jews in the city of Jerusalem. 2.7 million. That's a lot of people in one city. And the, they're coming to celebrate the Passover. And the Passover is a celebration of a time where an oppressor, a physical, tangible oppressor, was removed from the Jewish people. So they're celebrating a tangible physical oppression. And so 2.7 million people, all the Jews in the world, are expected to come to Jerusalem for this time and to celebrate this 
freedom from oppression. And now we've got all this hubbub about Jesus and who he is. And he's here. He is the Messiah. He is claiming to be the Messiah. People are afraid that he is the Messiah. People are afraid of who he is, who he might be, whether or not he's going to be able to come through on what he said, whether or not he's going to be on a time when they're celebrating a time where Moses did that for us. So Jesus is just the latest in a line. He is Moses. He is David. He is Solomon. He is someone sent by God to come and free us from what we perceive to be our oppression. Wrongly perceived to be our oppression. So 2.7 million people. This is the next day. A large crowd is gathering and this stuff happens. Jesus comes and receives these people as I am your king. And I want to take you, we, we need to do a, a little bit of John history here. Go back to John six fifteen. It says this, it, it's on a screen as well. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is a few months ago. Don't know exactly the time frame, but they thought they saw Jesus as their king and we're going to take you by force and make you be our king. But Jesus was not ready for that. Jesus, it wasn't time yet for them to be, for Jesus to be known as the king. And so Jesus is in control of that. And I want you to, want you to see in the middle of, of this historical message that Jesus is in complete control of what happens to him and when it happens to him. He's not ready yet. Go to our, our passage, John 12, 13. So they took branches of palm trees. Remember, that was their custom to greet their heroes, their saviors, their people that are going to free them from oppression with palm trees. Crying out, they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. They're proclaiming him to be king and Jesus is accepting it to be king. But this, I want to take a second to, to do some research, some study on what was actually said. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This word Hosanna is a word for these Hebrew people that means save us now. And again, these people, save us now means for them, save us from these mean people who are doing mean things to us. If we were in the middle of a, if we were face to face with our hero, we would probably say to him, save us from these mean people who are doing these mean things to us. Save us from our, our circumstances. Save us from right now. But this verse is from Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Psalm 117 and 118 are called the Halal. H-A-L-L-E-L, the Halal which is uh, an exclamation, a song that every Jewish kid would have learned in grades, in elementary school. And, and when they were small, they would have learned this halal. And it is a shout, a proclamation, a song that they would have sung to learn about, to teach them to expect that God was going to send someone to save them. So they're hammering it into their children so that when they get to be adults, they can know Save us. They can know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For us, if I were to start singing Jesus Loves Me, we could all join in. All of us know the song, right? Who doesn't know Jesus Loves Me, right? Everybody knows it. 
For us, that's, that's our halal. That's a, a shout to God, a song that we learned as children to teach us about who God is. For these Jewish people, this is a song that they learned as children so they can know who God is, to teach themselves over and over and over again. So when we read this psalm together, we are connecting, just like we did with Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, written in 1850, or 1757, 250 years ago. This is a song, same way, designed to teach us theology about who God is and what to expect from him that was written thousands of years ago. And thousands of generations have spoken this psalm. And here these people are singing it to Jesus. Let's read what it says in Psalm 118, 25, and 26. And can you do me a favor? It's on the screen here. Let's just read this together. We connect with the ancients and proclaiming this about who Jesus is. You ready? Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Like this goes along with the message. This is exactly what these people were proclaiming to Jesus 2,000 or so years ago. But what we just said together, like probably it was, there was, the monotone when everybody gets together and whatever. But what we just proclaimed is something that Christians have been proclaiming for thousands of years. Thousands of years. Your great, 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 great grandfather read this psalm. David read this psalm. An expectation that Jesus was going to come. Save us now. Save us now. This is a proclamation. This is a powerful thing that we're connecting with the ancients with. And for these people, it is a proclamation asking, begging, proclaiming, exclaiming, demanding of Christ to save us now. But they're saying save us now because these people are mean and they're doing mean things to us. And I want us to see Jesus is thought to be the one to free them from that very physical very tangible oppression. So this exclamation is not so much rooted in who Jesus is, but instead what Jesus can do for these people. All right? And I hope that's poking a stick in your eye. Because so many times we come to Jesus with with no regard for who he is. The only regard we have for Jesus, the only use that we have for Jesus is to free us from a circumstance, to make us more comfortable in who we are and what's going on. But this is Christ, the living God, bringing freedom from spiritual oppression so that we might have relationship with him. Do you know the point of Jesus' coming is so that we might connect with who he is? Nothing else. It's not so that your circumstances can be better. These people get it wrong. We get it wrong. Jesus wants to have relationship with us. And the the beautiful part, the poetic part about this is there's nothing attractive about the way that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. 2.7 million people expecting their king, so much so that they're shouting songs from thousands of years ago, waving palm branches for him. And how does he arrive? On a donkey, my friend and pastor John Ryan 
in a sermon about this says this, donkeys don't say, I'm going to take over your city. The love of Jesus is always humble because it reveals that God is all satisfying. It reveals that God is great above all things. It reveals that God alone is the greatest thing. Jesus defines the glory of God with humility by riding on a donkey. Read that last sentence again. Jesus defines the glory of God by riding on a donkey. It's humility at its core. it's, It's teaching us to look beyond our current circumstance. If Jesus wanted us to see the circumstance, he would have probably ridden on a giant horse, this massive white horse with a long flowing white robe and like calling thunder and lightning from the sky as he walked into the, into the city. But he comes in defining his glory with humility. It reminds me of this. Hit that clip, David. District 12, our favorites, well, or my So there's a hundred different parallels you can draw from, if you guys know the, the Hunger Games story, the Hunger Games situation, it's, the idea is we're going to put on a show. We're going to put on a show not just for the sake of the show, but for the sake of, of continuing our oppression of you. We're going to act powerful. We're going we're gonna to be strong and, and courageous and appear to be strong and courageous and appear to be powerful so that we can continue our oppression of you. We're going to put on this, this show of force that's not real so that you might be afraid and be fearful and, can, and live in your oppression. We're going to come in this great pageantry. We're going to present to you our power in a false way. So you will be intimidated by, who, by, by the sheer sight of us. And then, if you could hear it, they're, they're howling, Katniss, Katniss. And this is, the, this is the same thing that's happening with Jesus. They're singing this great song, you are the one, you are the chosen one, you are the Messiah, you've come to save us. And Jesus doesn't come with a flaming dress on a, on a great 
chariot in front of 2.7 million people drawing attention to himself. He comes humble on a donkey. And like the, the thing that, that drives me crazy about familiar passages is we, oh yeah, he came in a donkey. But I want you to get that picture. This is Jesus, the savior of the world, riding on a nasty, dirty animal that's about that tall. It's, it's the definition of humility. Because Jesus doesn't need you to think that he's really, really strong and is going to physically overpower the Romans. He doesn't need that. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want that notion even in your brain. He wants you to see him and him alone because in him and him alone is all satisfying glory and purpose. This is Jesus. The triumphal entry is powerful. The most important event in human history is going to take place in five days from this moment. Not like this moment, that moment. I want to make that clear. Like next Friday, something really important is happening. No. From the triumphal entry, five days from that moment, the most important event in human history is going to happen in this city at the hands of this man. And he enters into this city on a donkey. My friend John also says this in that sermon. Do you see humility as something that Christ put on for a moment like a cloak? That he needed to be humble for a moment in order to carry out a task on this earth? Or do you believe that humility is part of the character of God? This situation for Jesus called for humility. He wants people to see him humble. But that's not a, a cloak that he puts on. Okay, you know what? I think the best way for me to enter into this city today is to be humble. I'm going to be humble. Like if you, the, our catching fire scene. He had a guy, or she had a, a guy craft him her, her suit that she was going to wear and, and made it catch on fire and all that stuff. They crafted that. For Jesus to wear humility was to, to be. And, and we, as we think about humility and, and trying to be humble, trying to be like Christ in our humility, many times, and, and I'm guilty of this a lot, we act humble or we do humble things so that we might gain something. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going to be humble today because that's going to make you feel bad and give me something. We do that all the time. But the character, the nature of Jesus is filled with humility. Your king is here. He wants to have intimate relationship with you. And that's the purpose of of Jesus' humility here. And the the poetic dichotomy of, of this is that Jesus is coming filled with humility. But if anyone had reason to not be humble, to have pride, it's Christ. This is God in the flesh, humble. Us, if anybody has reason to not be prideful and to be humble, it's us. There's nothing of value about us that brings us into a relationship with God. It's only Christ. 
But Jesus defines humility for us. Paul defines Jesus' humility for us in Philippians 2, 4 through 8. He says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. He's defining humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So be like Jesus. And the thing is, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If we've claimed the name of Christ, this attitude is possible for us. Verse 6 is the heart of the humility of Christ. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility defined by Christ. That same passage in the New Living Translation, my, my favorite translation of, of this verse, because it has a couple of phrases in it that, that really bring to light what's being communicated here. Verse 6, Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. I love that phrase. He didn't cling to his rights as God. This is humility being defined for us. Clinging to your rights. Jesus came to this earth as God. Fully within his rights and authorities and privileges. To do and say and be whatever he wanted. But he comes humble. He didn't cling to his rights as God. I want to ask each of us a question. How do we cling to our rights? And when we do, we're opposite of God. We're opposite of Christ. We're opposite of what Jesus is calling us to do. Jesus did not cling to his rights as God. Instead, he made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on the cross. The Savior of the world who is receiving from people, you are king, save us, O O Lord, waving palm branches at him. This is the humility of Christ. And it's the call on our lives. Jesus came to you humble. Jesus calls for you to come to him in the same way, humble. We often come to Jesus saying, Look at me, look what I've done, look what I've given to you. Um, I had a conversation with somebody this week, uh, and it was a late night conversation, uh, and Jen and I were, were talking to, to a girl, and she was wrestling with identity issues, sin issues, difficult, hard time that she was in the middle of, and it had to do with her purity. She had given away her purity. And... Uh, she said something really profound on my, my cream chair in my living room. She said, that was the thing, the one thing. I've done a lot of really bad stuff in my life, but that was the one thing that I had that I could give to God. 
and now I don't have it anymore. And so I don't know what I am or who I am or, or, or whose I am. And so my only response in the middle of that confusion is to dive further into that. And I just don't know. I've got no idea who I am, what my identity is. Because the one thing that I had that I could give to God, I don't have anymore to give to him. And it was an all, full of tears and, and, and pride and hardness and strain was, was all over her voice. And like, it was a beautiful moment because the gospel was just dripped all over it. Because right after Paul tells us about the humility of Christ, he says this in the very next chapter, Philippians 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in his flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. All of that, those verses and weird Bible-sounding stuff, is to say, I'm really cool. I have a lot to give to Jesus. It's that girl on my cream chair saying, this is the one thing I had to give to Jesus. Paul saying, these are all of the things that I have to give to Jesus. All of them. But here's, here's the thing. Like, God is not impressed with anything that you have to give to him. Listen to me, because like everybody in this room knows that. There's, that was not news to anybody here. That Jesus is not impressed with anything you have to give to him. But practically speaking, we think that somehow he is impressed with this one thing that we have to give to him. He's not. I think the beautiful picture of of the triumphal entry is our call to come to Jesus in that same way. He's not interested in pageantry. He's not interested in your show. He's not interested in your resume. You know what he's interested in? You. And that's amazing. That's incredible. Like there's coming a time in your lives where you'll Maybe in three years, you'll be the, the girl sitting on my cream chair in my, my living room, tears streaming down your face, saying, this is the one thing I had to give to God. And you will have spent weeks or months or maybe years apart from Jesus because you don't have the thing you give to him anymore. But he doesn't, he's thoroughly unimpressed with you. You know who he's impressed with? Jesus. And that's the, the beautiful part of the rest of this verse, or passage. Philippians 3, 7. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss 
for the sake of Christ. This girl's purity that's now gone is lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Rubbish is a Greek word for dog poop. And I wish that there weren't children in this room so I could tell you what it really means. Because that's what it really means. It's a shocking word. Anything that you have that you count of significance is dog crap. Jesus is not impressed with it. He's impressed with Christ. God is not impressed with it. He's impressed only with Christ. And as you come to him, you come as Jesus came into Jerusalem to save the world, riding on a donkey, filled with humility, no show of any kind. This is me. And this is the call for us to come to God. This is me. And the end of it, the end of it, is knowledge of Jesus, which is the whole point. Do you, do you see your circumstances, good, bad, and indifferent, as pawns on a chessboard God is using to convince you that the only thing that you need is Jesus? Because that's what they are. I'm looking around, it, and, and, I, and I know most of the stories of the eyes that are looking at me right now. I know the good, I know the bad. God is not impressed with the good, and he's not scared away by the bad. He heard your plea when you said, save us now. And he did, and it's done. And now we have the opportunity to seize circumstances to know Jesus better. To know the gospel better. To have it pounded further into our brains better. Or we have the opportunity to let our our circumstances freeze us. And scare us. Or fill us up with pride. Hey, look what I have to give to you. Who cares? Jesus is the end. Jesus is the point. I count everything worthless that I might gain Christ. This is the gospel. Jesus giving to you. The humility of Christ is a call for us to come to him humble. And it's not a momentary call, it's a forever call. This is Jesus calling to you. Wanting to have relationship with you. Let's pray and respond to Jesus now. Father, I pray for us all. God, I want to know you, Father. 
I want to lay down my righteousness, God. And I want to pick up yours. God, I want to come to you humble. I want to stand before these people humble. I want to want to know Jesus. I want to label my oppressor as Satan. I want to label my hope as Jesus. I want to label my oppressor the sin that's in my life and in my heart deeply rooted. And I want to label my Savior as Christ. Father, take it away that I might be holy, that I might know you, Father. That I might gain intimacy and knowledge of you. God, would I not see jobs or disobedient children or strife with personalities? May I not see that as my oppressor, Father, but instead my own sin. And the deceiver, the enemy, is is Satan. And my only hope is you. And you are so beautiful. So loving, so strong. So kind, so good. That you would send your son... emptied of his glory, of his, of his power, emptied of, him, of, of his godhood to come and take on man to live a life that we couldn't live, to die a death that we should have died, that we might have relationship with you. God, teach us what it means to be humble like Christ. And, and give us the motivation of intimacy with you to push us to that. Teach us to serve people around us. To not cling to our rights as husbands or wives or dads or children or employees. Teach us to not cling to our rights but instead serve as your son served, God. Teach us humility. God, we love you. We want to love you more. We trust you and we want to trust you more. Thank you for the perfect picture of Jesus on a donkey. full of humility. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.